Okay, so tonight the plan is to finish up Revelation 7. I think you'll find some very interesting things in the remaining of the chapters, some things I hope will encourage you and build up your faith. Before we get into the new material for the night, let's just re always remember where we're at in our, in our study. We're right here in chapter 7. We have considered uh, in the previous two chapters the book with the seven seals. And remember that book, we said, pretty much tells the story of Revelation. And the rest of the book will be going back and trying to plug in the details of what those first six seals were all about. Remember the six seals. The story of Revelation begins with the conquering of the gospel, the conflict that follows the gospel. This includes oppression, economic oppression, the murdering of Christians. The sixth or the fifth seal uh, gave a vision of the martyred Christians crying for justice. And then in seal number six, we see God bringing about that justice in due time, where he brings about judgment on the enemies of his people. Now, before the breaking of the seventh seal, because remember, there's seven seals, not just six. There's seven of them. And somebody may say, well, what about the seventh seal? When is that going to be broken? Well, that, that's going to be broken. But before it is, before the lion and the lamb breaks the seventh seal, that will reveal details about God's judgment upon the enemies of his people, the Holy Spirit is first going to provide an interlude in the story. There's a break in the action. There's a pause in the story before the seventh seal is broken. That's what chapter 7 is about. Chapter 7 is an interlude. In chapter 8, you'll find the seventh seal being broken, but in chapter 7, you have the interlude, and the interlude involves answering a very important question, and that is, what's going to happen to God's people? When the almighty and powerful God finally exercises judgment against the enemies of his people, what's going to happen to the Christians? Are they going to be okay in all of this? Will God watch over them and protect them? What's going to happen to God's people as God executes this great period of judgment upon the enemies? Now, remember when studying Revelation 7, we broke the chapter up into two parts. We broke it up in half, basically. We considered first verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to consider tonight verses 9 through 17. In verses 1 through 8, we saw it at the point of that part of the text, which to send the message that God knows and, he got, and God cares. He knows and he cares about his people. Even during this time of judgment that the sixth seal reveals, God wants his people to know that he knows them and he cares about them and he's going to watch out for them. So let's just go back real quick and see what you remember from that. Verse number one of the chapter, four angels, four angels. Where are they standing, the four angels? And what did we say that represented the four corners of the earth? All the earth, all the earth, north, south, east, west. They're, they're, they're standing on all the earth. So they're doing something. Now, before you tell me what that represents, just, just, just stick with the text for now. They are holding back something. What does the text say? 
They're holding back the what? Holding back the wind. So the wind is going, but they're going to hold back the wind. Now, the wind, what would that represent? That should be pretty easy because we've, we've used this word a lot so far. The wind represents judgment. This is God's judgment. So they're going to hold back God's judgment. They're holding it back while it was being executed. They have authority to do this. So why did they pull back the judgment? Why did they stop this judgment, this terrible judgment that was causing kings and, and other people in high positions and people to run and hide and they're experiencing the wrath of God? Why did they stop this? Somebody say it again. They had to seal them. They had to seal who? Who are they sealing? God's people. Sealing or marking God's people. Now the question may be asked, does this refer to a literal mark, like a mark on the forehead or something? No, remember what this book is about. We learned this early. That's why I want to really emphasize the guideposts. The guideposts are so important. Remember, this is a book of what? Symbolism. This is a book of signs and symbols, so no literal mark here. Instead, what this refers to is just God identifying his people. He knows who his people are. He doesn't have to put some on them for, them, for him to know who they are. And he doesn't have to put some on them for they to know who they are. A child of God can be recognized ultimately how? How can God's children be recognized today very clearly? By, 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 by our love. And really, in addition to love, because really love is the core of it, you're right, but really by the way we what? By the way we live, by the way we live every day. How we love, how we treat people, those kinds of things. That's how people identify us. We don't need to have some special mark on our forehead or something for people to know that we're Christians. Jesus says the way you shine, the way you shine your light, that's how people know that you're my people. So, so. This is not a literal mark here. This is, this is just God letting his people know that I'm going to watch out for you. I know who you are. Let's talk about the number 144,000. There's this number here. We also said that that number, that 144,000, was not a to be taken literal either, right? What did that number represent? Be very careful with your language. Be very careful with your language here. What did that number represent? Okay, completeness, but, it, but, but it's, it's numbering who? Who is that number? Entirety of God's people where? That's why I said be careful with your language. On the earth. This is God's people on the earth. Because remember, the judgment is taking place on the earth. They're holding back the wind on the earth. You see that? That's important. That's important. The reason I'm stressing that is because when you get to the next part here, it's not on the earth no more. It's not just on the earth anymore. We're going to move it. Okay? So right now you got to make the distinction. The first half is God's people on the earth. This is them on the earth. Not a literal number. It represents, it represents something. Now let's talk about the tribes a little bit. These all, you had all the tribes mentioned, remember? Um, were the tribes meant to be taken literal? Did the, the mention of the tribes mean that the physical Jews were still God's people? What did the tribes represent? What did, the, what did they represent? Israel there. Spiritual Israel. 
Um, this is especially has to be the case if you take the late date, because if you take the late first century date of Revelation, by that time, what had happened to the temple? It's gone. And without the temple, you don't have what? You don't have lineage. You don't have a, a nation of Israel anymore. They're they're gone because they don't have their records. They don't have the priesthood. They can't offer sacrifices. Everything that made them a nation, a nation, it's it's gone. Uh, and so that means really that there are no legitimate Jews today. By that, I mean no Jew person who claims to be a Jew today can trace their lineage. You understand that? So 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 that's important. This is I think those tribes there represent spiritual Israel, the Israel that we are a part of today. But there were two tribes and this is another way, you know, it's not meant to be taken literal. Because there were two of the tribes that were missing. Do you remember which two tribes that was? Dan and Ephraim. Dan and Ephraim. They were not mentioned there. And the main reason why they were not mentioned is because in the Old Testament, God used them, used Jer or Jeroboam used them, I'm sorry, to lead Israel down a path of what? Idolatry. And this letter is about Christians understanding that you can't serve God and idols. That's what Revelation is about. Because what is the empire trying to get Christians to do? Bow down to Caesar as a god. That's a form of idolatry. And of course you wouldn't put the two tribes that was used to lead Israel into idolatry in this list. This is a letter designed to encourage Christians not to get involved in idolatry. And so they're not included there. And so this part of the vision reveals the protection and care of God upon his people while he executes judgment on those who oppressed, oppressed them. While he executes judgment on the people who were trying to destroy the church. Okay, so before we dive into, we start reading Revelation 7, starting with verse 9. Did anybody have any comments here, questions about anything so far? Uh, or comments concerning the first eight verses. That's what we got so far in Revelation 7. Looks like we're all on the same page pretty good so far. Are we okay? All right, let's go to Revelation 7. Revelation 7, verse number 9. It says, after these things, so now we're in another, another thing here, another vision. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude. Look at this which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be given to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. He said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation." And they have been washed, and they have, and they have washed, I'm sorry, their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb is in the center of the throne, in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So let's look at what's going on here. Okay, after those, and I want you to follow me here. Let's go with verse number nine. After those on the earth, after those on the earth were sealed or marked by God, what does John see in verse nine? What does he see? A multitude, and not just a multitude, but a great multitude. This is a great multitude. A great multitude. And this great multitude appears to be victorious, doesn't it? Don't, don't they? They appear to have been delivered from their enemies. They are coming out of a time of what? Great tribulation. Great tribulation, it says. So this great multitude is victorious. They've been delivered. They're coming out of a time of great tribulation. As far as the number of these people go, is there a number given here concerning this multitude? There's no number here. The scripture says they are innumerable. No one could number them. No one could count them. And notice how they consist of not just Jews, like God's people in the Old Testament, right? These people come from where? Every nation. These are all people. These are all nations of people, people who speak different languages, have different cultural backgrounds. These are people from all the tribes of the earth. This was something that the Jews should not have missed. You know, so often I think we give the Jews of Jesus' day a pass for not knowing that God was going to bring the Gentiles in. If you study the Old Testament carefully, the prophets prophesied that over and over again. They constantly prophesied about how God was going to bring in all nations at some point. The Jews missed that because they wanted to miss it. They wanted to miss it. They did not want God to bring all people into his family. They took pride in being God's special people because of physical lineage. And they still struggle with that to this day for the most part. And, and, and so that's something they should not have missed. These people come from all nations. This is very different than the, than the old law. These people are before the throne of God. But they're not just before the throne of God. They're also before the Lamb. The Lamb. They're before His throne. Now, let's talk about what they got going on here. They're clothed. What are they clothed in? White robes. What does that represent, you think? They're clothed in white robes. Yeah. Purity. And, and I really like that last part. The sinlessness. While they were sinners, we're sinners, right? But we can still wear white robes, can't we? White spiritual robes. And why can we wear the white spiritual robes? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus makes us so we can be as white as snow. And, and I think that's the idea. These people are in white, in purity, 
and, in, and are blameless and not infected by sin because of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus. Brother Don, yes, sir. Yeah, can we use the term blameless? Yes. Justified yes. No, I think that's good. And that's what the New Testament says there, Don, about Christians. You look at the qualifications for an elder. He must be blameless, not sinless. He's a sinner like everybody else, but he's blameless. And, and really, that same qualifications for all Christians. We all should be blameless. We're not sinless. We've committed sin. But because of the blood of Jesus, we've been justified, and we can be blameless even right now, even though we've committed sin, and we've been infected with sin. So, so that, that's a good observation they're done. Very good. Okay, so they got the white robes on. They're blameless. They've had their sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. They also have something. What do they have? Palm branches. Do you remember anywhere else in the, in the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus, where, where you find palm branches? Yep, yep. The triumphal entry. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem? Uh, that was in John 11, I believe. Well, John 12, I'm sorry, thank you. Uh, John 12, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, how was he received coming into Jerusalem on that Sunday? The people praised him. They, had, they, they, they bowed down before him. They said, Hosanna, the son of David. They had, they had palm branches. They spread them in the road for him. They, I'm sorry? Yeah it, was a yeah, it was very festival. That's right. Absolutely. And it's interesting because what is this great multitude doing here? They're doing the same thing. They're praising Jesus. They're praising him as the, as the lamb. And so you have palm branches again being used here concerning Jesus, and it's in the context of praising him and exalting him for being the Messiah. So this is a beautiful scene. That's, that's really what I want you to see there. This is a scene of victory. This is a scene of glory. And this is a scene that we can take part in. I want you to understand that. We can take part in this scene. We can be the people before the throne wearing the white robes and praising the name of, of Jesus. Now, I want to say something about verse 10 in just a second. But, Brother Dunn, you have a comment. Go ahead, sir. These palm branches, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus is not allowed in this class. I'm joking, Dunn. <laughs> Yes. Absolutely. Good thoughts. All right. Now look at verse 10. Verse 10. Why are they praising God and the Lamb according to verse 10? Well, how would you how would you give a good, easy commentary on that? They're crying out with a loud voice. Why are they praising God and the Lamb? Because they are the source of what? Salvation. This is about salvation. God the Father and the Lamb are praised here by the people who've come out of the great tribulation because of salvation. Not so much as being delivered from physical oppression, although we do praise God for that, but there is a greater deliverance we've received from God, and that's deliverance from sin. Deliverance from sin. And they're praising God because of that. But they're not the only ones praising God. Verse 11 says, there are other spiritual beings taking part in this. So what do you see there? Give me one, one other group that's praising God on this occasion. 
you got angels, angels, spiritual beings, spiritual beings created by God, according to Psalm 148. Who else is here? Elders. And who else? Four living creatures. So these are spiritual beings, and they're worshiping God. And they're worshiping the Lamb on this occasion. And it's interesting, and I think Mitch may have brought this up one time. And Mitch, I made sure I went back and counted this time, make sure I didn't miss it. But in verse 12, the things they say there concerning God, how many things do they say there? It's seven again. It's seven. And that's a big number in Revelation too, isn't it? What does seven usually represent Revelation? That's the idea of completeness also. So this is a complete praise of God here. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might. All of these things are to be ascribed to God at the highest level forever. Forever. So we have, we have that in verse 12. Now look carefully at verse 13. Let's talk about verse 13. One of the elders in heaven asked about this great multitude. This great multitude. What does he ask? He asked two questions. They both start with a W. Who and where? Who and where? Now, does he already know the answer to this question? Yeah, he knows. Just like God knew the answer to the question Going back to Genesis, when he asked Adam, after Adam had sinned, where, where were you? What have you done? God already knew the answer. But sometimes questions are asked by God and the Lord Jesus to get us to understand some things and to get us to think a little bit. You understand that? Yes, same idea. Same idea. So who and where have these people come from? Now, what is, how does John answer that? When the, when the elder asked him, who are these people and where have they come from? How does John answer? I don't know. There's no answer. I have no answer. You know, but I, the implication is he doesn't know. Now this man, this spiritual being, whoever this is, he knows. He knows where they come from. So where does he say? He says these are the ones who have come out of what? You know, that's a controversial statement there, that great tribulation. People are divided on what that means exactly. In Matthew 24, Jesus described the destruction of Jerusalem as a period of great tribulation. And that's, that's, that is one reason why some people take an early date on the book, because of that language, great tribulation. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not dogmatic on that at all. I'm not dogmatic because periods of great tribulation have always affected God's people, right? I mean, certainly the destruction of Jerusalem was a period of great tribulation. Jesus says there would be no period like it ever again in the history of the world. He was very clear about that. But would you also say a world empire persecuting Christians would also be a period of great tribulation? Would you say that too? And what about maybe some of the things we've gone through and are going through? And we'll maybe go through even more in the future as Christians. Could that be great tribulation? I mean, I, think, I mean, tribulation and, it's, and even great periods of tribulation are always going to be there for God's people. You know why? Because we got a great enemy. We got, we got the devil after us. And we got people who oppose the truth. So there are always going to be periods of great tribulation. 
So I, I just think that's interesting. Brother James, go ahead, sir. You say Revelation 3, sir, 4 through 5. Yes, uh, the church is Sardis, yes. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Revelation 3, 4. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father who's in heaven. Absolutely. It's the same idea. Same idea here. That's good. So this great tribulation period here, these people have come out of it and they've come out of it ultimately because in this scene here, and I want to be clear, this is God's people in heaven, just so you know. This is God's people in heaven here. That's the ultimate deliverance. And, I, and that kind of goes back, Greg, to something you said Sunday. And I was thinking about that when I, when I was studying this, that we closed the class on Sunday by you saying that, you know, even though going back to the first part of the vision, God said that he was going to mark his people and seal his people, that didn't guarantee they weren't going to suffer some on the earth. In fact, God even promised in the fifth seal that some of them were going to die. More people were going to die. So that's not the ultimate deliverance. And God never made that promise. What God does promise, though, is if we are faithful to him, he will deliver us in the ultimate way, and that's bring us into heaven. That's the ultimate deliverance. And it takes great spiritual maturity and spiritual vision to appreciate that. Because so often we're, our mind is just limited here. We want to be saved here. We want to be delivered here. We don't want any problems and troubles here. And God is so above that. He's thinking about saving our souls, not our flesh. He wants to bring us into heaven. And, and that's what's going on here. These people have come out of the great tribulation. They're victorious, and they are victorious because they've had their sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb. That's the point there. Because they've had their sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb, look at verse 15. For this reason... For this reason, that's how verse 15 starts, right? They've come out of the tribulation. They've had, their, they've had their robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. Because of that, they are blessed, verse 15, to be before the throne of God. See, that's heaven there. That's being in the presence of God. They are before God. And how, how long are they before the throne of God? Well, let me ask this first before you answer that. Forgive me. They're before the throne of God, but what are they doing before the throne of God? Serving. Someone says, what exactly are they doing as far as serving goes? They're doing whatever God requires. Okay, they're just serving God. Whatever he wants, they do. They serve God. You can say they worship God. Okay, nothing wrong with that. I want to take part in all of that. And how long do they do this? Day and night. That's just another way of saying they do it forever. forever. Because there's no time in heaven, right? There's no, there's, no, there's no night in heaven. This is just another way of saying, and, and so in human terms, we can get this. This is them doing it forever. They're forever doing this, and, it's, and, they, and they serve him in his what? According to verse 15, day and night in his. What was the temple designed ultimately to represent and under the old law? Yes, it was a type of heaven. Don't, don't take away my Lord's Supper. Oh. 
Yeah. Oh, sorry. You you going this Sunday? Oh man. Next up, next up. Oh, okay. Well, people forget about it by then, so they they forget my sermons usually after five minutes. So don't worry about it. <laughs> so, uh, but yes, it's the, it's the temple. It, the temple is is was ultimately a, a type or shadow of the heavenly. That's what the most holy place was all about. The perfect, it was the perfect presence of God on the earth. That's what he represented. That's why the Ark of the Covenant was in there. And the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was made in there. But here you get the real thing. You get what the temple, the earthly temple was pointing to, which was to be in heaven. And the perfect presence of God. That's why Jesus died. He died so we can serve in the actual temple the perfect presence of God as priest forever. That's why Jesus died. And so here you have God's people serving him in his temple, the actual heavenly temple. And they get to enjoy being in the perfect presence and fellowship of God. Now let me just say this, and you, and you know this already, but I do want to bring it up. You know, Paul in his letters talks about the temple quite a bit, doesn't he? He uses the temple to talk about different things. And, it, and he does this really in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 6. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about the temple, but he says there is a sense in which the temple represents the what? The church. The church is the temple of God. So we are the temple of God right now. And that means that God's presence should be among us at all times. He talks about the church collectively being God's temple. And because of the blood of Jesus, God's presence is with us all the time. He's with us always. But then in chapter 6, he says something else is the temple. He says, when you look at chapter 6, verse 18, look at 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Because Paul was just on a whole different level when it came to stuff like this. He says in verse 18, you flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but, any, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So there he's saying don't commit immorality. Don't commit sexual immorality. And why? Well, verse 19 says this, this is why this is so important. Do you not know that you're what? Your body. Your body right now. Your, your, your individual body as a Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And so, you know, we could do a whole sermon series, and we may one day own the idea of a temple. You got the church being the temple. You got your body being the temple. And in Revelation, you have the actual heavenly temple where God's people are with him forever. Brother Mitch, yes, sir. Yes, go right ahead, sir. Yes. And we've come to, and I like how he says, you've come to it. You're there now. Right now, we're there. So there is a sense, and that's a good text, Mitch. Great text. That's, that's why we're supposed to worship in spirit. Yes, because right now we're God's temple. Right now we've reached Mount Zion. We're there now, the Hebrew writer says. Uh, so that's something very important to appreciate and to be mindful of. But ultimately, 
we're still trying to get somewhere else too. And that is to heaven. And I think that's what Revelation 7 is pointing to. So, verse 16, okay? My time gets away from me so fast. I get talking about the Bible and I, I can't stop done. Uh, so for this reason, they're blessed to be before God. They get to serve him day and night in the temple. They get to enjoy being in his perfect presence and fellowship. Verse 16 says they also experience no more trials. No more trials. You don't get trials in heaven. We get trials now on the earth, even as the temple of God. But in verse number 7, it says they're not going to hunger anymore, not thirst anymore. Now the sun won't be down on you any heat. You're going to be totally satisfied. But, and this is a reference to spiritual satisfaction. True spiritual satisfaction. We will regain what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Going back to the book of Genesis. We're not going to have any more needs because, verse 17 says, the lamb will provide for our every needs. You see that? Verse 17, the lamb. The lamb's going to be our shepherd. Isn't it interesting he's called a lamb and a shepherd in the same text? <laughs> yeah, it's turned around. And I, I caught that. I thought it was very interesting. He's going to be our shepherd. The, the lamb will be the shepherd. Very interesting. And that reminds me of John 10. Jesus says, I'm the, the good shepherd. And we're the sheep. But there's also a sense, according to Isaiah 53, which Jesus was a, was a, was a lamb. A sheep led to the slaughter. So he, he fulfills both spiritually. He's going to give us access to the river of life. That's just symbolic language talking about eternal life. Remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. He says, I have access to what? Living water. And what did she say? I want this water. Jesus gives access to living water, spiritual water to when you drink it, you will never thirst. And then it concludes by saying he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. That is also going to be mentioned in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, with the heavenly Jerusalem, how God wipes away every tear from our eyes. Someone says, well, what about if my mom doesn't make it or my dad doesn't make it? I, of course, I'm going to be sad and grieving. How's God going to wipe away my tears if my loved ones don't make it? I'm going to tell you this. Here's the answer to that. You ready? I don't know. I, all I know is what God has promised. And if God says he can do it, I trust it. Do you trust it? I trust it. I don't need God to tell me how he's going to do something. I just need to know he can do it because he can do anything. So I'm not going to worry about God's business. So what is this all about? Unlike verses 1 through 8 where we find God providing or promising, I'm sorry, to mark his people on the earth, here we find God promising rest to his people with him in heaven. The first part was God promising to mark them, protect them in some way on the earth. The second part is God promising rest for them when this life is over. With this promise, God is trying to motivate his people. He's trying to motivate them to endure. He's trying to motivate them to press on. He's trying to get them to really appreciate Revelation 2 and verse 10 that says, be faithful unto death. And I will give you what? A crown of life. That's the promise God is making in that part of the vision. And I want to suggest that God also makes that same promise to us. 
That same promises to us. We too, and I want you to listen carefully to me. Even though we were not on the earth during the time of the great tribulation of the Roman persecution, we are still part of the great multitude. We're still part of that great multitude. We still want to be part of this part of the vision where we are clothed in white and we have the palm branches and we are praising God forever and we've come out of whatever tribulation we've had to endure on this earth. We are still part of this, this multitude. And so you got two different scenes of God's people in this chapter. You got them on the earth being sealed and you got them in heaven being victorious and forever comforted by God and serving him. That's my understanding of the text there. So we're going to have to close here in just a minute. Does anybody have any final thoughts, comments on this? Brother Lance, go ahead, sir. So I think we've done a really good job making sure we don't take things literally. And I, I, I think we have to do the same thing with that great tribulation. I think we have to take it as a possible meaning. And I struggle with these verses here. But if, if we take it from a possible point of view, I think that great tribulation could simply represent life on earth. It doesn't matter if it was from Adam and Eve in the beginning, us today, people in the future, this time, compared to being with God in heaven before his throne, life here on earth is a tribulation. And, and, and to, to me, that helps, you know, all, everything else you described about this being in heaven that, that helps that makes sense to me. Well, that, and, and to go with what you're saying, Lance, that's how I take it. Unless the Bible tells us exactly what this great tribulation is, I, I don't like speculating it. I just like to say that God's people always go through great tribulations. And I think if we take it that way, it's always going to motivate God's people no matter what time they're living in. Jesus coming down from heaven, spending his life on earth and going back to heaven, to him being out of heaven on this earth was a tribulation. Absolutely. Thank you for your comments, everybody. I appreciate you so much. Be ready, Lord willing, for chapter 8. We'll start chapter 8 on Sunday, okay?